You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. The Martha Zoller Show, and um, one guy that does go to work is Representative Andrew Clyde, and he, of course, uh, was up very late on Friday night, and then he'll be going back up today, and it's going to be a busy time. Representative Clyde, thank you for being with me today. We know we ended sometime early Saturday morning. So tell us what that was like, first of all, and then what's on the agenda now? Well, uh, well, let me hit the agenda first. Uh, the next... Um, order of business is going to be voting in rules because that's how Congress operates. First, you elect the, you swear in the represent, well, swear in the speaker, then the representatives, and then you, um, vote on the rules package that we all have looked at and agreed to. And this is the thing. This is why we didn't do the rules last, uh, uh, Saturday morning because one of the agreements that we had was that there must be 72 hours between the time a piece of legislation is is finalized and in print and the time it comes to the House floor. So that was the very first instance of, of what the agreement was actually coming into play. Uh, so we had to have 72 hours to go over those rules, and as a result, uh, the rules vote is going to be tonight. So uh, what are what are some of the things people could expect from those rules changes? Well, um, first, you know, as I mentioned, the 72 hour rule uh, and then you have single subject bills, which have not seen the House in probably my lifetime. Uh, and then you have germaneness of amendments to those bills. And what that means is we will never see the type of omnibus bill that we all, you know, voted on in December and got to look at for 24 hours, it was 4,400 pages long. That means the bill has to be one solitary subject, and the amendments to those bills have to comply with that subject. So, you know, if, if you're if you're trying to have a, a bill on the National Defense Authorization Act, and somebody wants to put in a bill about, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a, about abortion, it doesn't work. You, you can't do that. Or, or, you know, a, a near mark on an, on an LGBTQ community center for $1.2 million, it doesn't work. That is a non-germane amendment, and that will immediately, um, you know, be thrown out. So that's one of the beauties of, of some of these, some of the changes to these rules. Um, <clears throat> and then I'll tell you, Martha, uh, one of the, one of the most amazing things that was agreed to is um, the church house, the church style committee. This is a committee that is going, its sole purpose is to go after the three-letter agencies in the federal government that have been weaponized against the American people. And we're talking the FBI, the Department of Justice, the ATF, um, and then some of those intelligence agencies as well, like the Central Intelligence Agency, um, you know, um, the National Security Agency, that truly have not been doing their job but have been politicized, this committee is now going to have the strength and the power to do that under law. Uh, and I am so excited about that. Our, our district in our country uh, hasn't seen anything yet as to what's going to happen to keep the government accountable because that was what this whole fight was about. 
It was about government accountability, just not accountability of the speaker, but accountability of the entire government. And that's why I'm so excited about this, uh, about the, the agreement that was reached um, and the implementation of that agreement. So you mentioned earmarks, and you mentioned them on Friday when we talked, too. And I think earmarks is one of those words that's been thrown out there, and it means a lot of different things to different people. You're not opposed to appropriate amendments that are put into the appropriate bill that might be a process for for a district, for a state, something like that. But you want it to be open and transparent where it can be debated so so it just not slipped into where it just happens, correct? Well, one of the things about these new rules and earmarks, if you want to call them that, or, or, or community improvement projects, is, number one, they have to have a federal nexus. You know, the, the Constitution, there are 18 enumerated powers of the federal government, and there are things that our government is doing at the federal level that has nothing to do with the Constitution and the fed, and federal authority, that those authorities should have stayed at the states, like the Department of Education, for example. You know, there's no federal nexus to it at all. Um, so, so earmarks are now going to not only um, have to have a, a significant federal nexus, they also have to be in a specific place in a bill. You can't hide them, you know, on page 532 and then another one on page, you know, 674. Um, they all have to be in a specific section. And then we also can do what's called dividing the question. Uh, it's, a, it's a funny term, but that means that we can demand that that specific section of earmarks has to have a specific vote in and of itself on that section on every earmark there now that's not exactly everything that we wanted we wanted to be able to have an, a, a vote on every solitary earmark you know we didn't quite get there but that's okay you know i mean sometimes you don't get everything you want in fact most of the times you don't get everything you want but it's a huge step forward to be able to pull those earmarks out put them in a specific section and then vote on that specific section as opposed to voting on the whole bill as a whole so you can you, you divide the bill into basically two votes, the earmarks and the rest of the bill. So that's really important. And that's kind of where we land on earmarks, if you will. So we now have a situation in Georgia where we have two Democratic senators. And it's been that way for a couple of years now. How does the, the uh, Georgia Congressional Caucus work with the Georgia Senatorial uh, pair. How did? The, how is that relationship? Well, you know, um, it's an unfortunate truth what you said. Um, I can't change that. Uh, um, you know, <clears throat> I guess now for the next uh, four years, but um, um, we will have to work with our senators. Uh, I will also let you know that in the rules there is a section that says that um, that when it comes to spending and budget. That the you know the Constitution says the how that revenue bills have to begin in the House. That's correct. They're, right. So therefore, any amendments that the Senate makes that do not comply with the rules of the House, they are immediately rejected. So it gives the House a tremendous amount of power that the House never had before. So um, it's a it's it's a it, it'll be interesting for the Senate. You know, the Senate's going to get a wake up call when this first starts to happen. Um, that, that the Senate is not used to dealing with the House in that way. They're used to running over the House. 
but that's not going to happen anymore. How do you uh, how do you think Speaker McCarthy is going to work with uh, Leader McConnell? Well, and, and that's a that's a great question because I've been thinking about that this whole weekend. We have heard on Fox News and on some other outlets. You know, now we have a more weakened speaker. You know, uh, I look at it as leveling the power between the representatives and the and the leadership. But actually, I think what this weekend has shown, especially Friday, it has shown that Kevin McCarthy. I believe his last words were, "I never give up." I believe that the White House and the Senate, the the Democrat leadership, is now terrified of a McCarthy that will not give up. We have seen that he can fight, and he's willing to fight. If he puts his mind to it, he can fight, and he can fight hard, and he can win. And that's what I think the Senate and the White House is seeing in in a speaker. Because if you have a speaker that, that is just himself has the power, that's one thing. But when you've got a speaker with the representatives behind him and the people behind those representatives, you now have a massive, massive amount of influence, much more than you would ever have if it was the speaker alone. And I think that that is going to terrify the White House and the um, and the Senate leadership. I think you're you're going to see a a brand new house, the way a house works. And I'm really excited about that, Martha. Well, I mean, and I think if at the the very least, if you all take back your responsibility to do the budget and do the budget under regular order, I mean, yeah, you know, you can't get everything you want. Right, Andrew? But that if that is to me the number one thing that you and and you say power they've never had before, I would say power that they're given by the Constitution that they had usurped and they're taking it back. That's what I would say. But, um, you know, it's I think it's it was an interesting week. I never was concerned about it because I knew eventually you guys were going to get there. Um, I hope that uh, Speaker McCarthy keeps his word and, um, you know, and that you guys can get a lot of good work done. Well, I will tell you that there are mechanisms in place um, that will come out eventually uh, that will show you how we can make sure that Speaker McCarthy keeps his word. But, you know, you're right that the Constitution gave us those powers. It's just those powers that have never been seen in Congress for a representative in my lifetime or your lifetime. And um, uh, I'm, I just I think that the represent the representatives are going to be so much more empowered and government is going to work so much better. And when you talk about budget, you're absolutely right. One of the requirements was that the fiscal year 24, 2024 budget, which is only, uh, which is the next budget that we can actually work on, um, that will be capped. Non uh, non defense discretionary levels will be capped at fiscal year 22, no higher than that. And also, appropriations must match the budget. Martha, I can't tell you the last time that appropriations were required to match the budget. Um, You know, that's the way we logically think should happen. But that's not the way Congress has worked for at least my lifetime. Well, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be happy about that if it happens. I'm going to be watching very closely. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we'll see what happens. Andrew Clyde, thanks for being with me today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Martha. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We're going to talk to Congressman Buddy Carter uh, from South Georgia because he has done 
what needs to be done, and that is introducing the Fair Tax Act. And hopefully, we won't just get rid of 87,000 IRS agents. We'll get rid of the IRS. Buddy Carter, thanks for being with me today. Well, thank you, Martha. And you're exactly right. You know, this Congress, we have already uh, already suspended the hiring of 87,000 IRS agents who were going to do nothing more than, than hound Americans. And not only have we done that, now we can take it one step further. We can do away with the IRS altogether by passing the fair tax. We won't need the IRS. We can do away with it. So tell folks, because in the past, obviously, H.R. 25 has been introduced at different times. And, you know, and there's been a lot of Georgia support over the years for this, but it never gets anywhere. Why would this session be different? And what does it look like as far as the number of people that are supporting it? Well, first of all, you're exactly right. The, the fair tax has a strong Georgia heritage. If you remember, Representative John Linder... Um, and then Rob Woodall. Rob, of course, was John Linder's chief of staff before he became a member of Congress, and they are the two who actually wrote the the, the legislation, if you will. And I, I might add that eight years ago, when I became a member of Congress, that was the first bill that I co-sponsored. And I did that intentionally because I, I had promised my constituents that's what I was going to do, and that's what I did. Now it's the first bill that I've introduced for this Congress, and I'm the lead sponsor of the bill. But why Why now? Why 25 years later, almost 25 years later, are we getting momentum, if you will, on this bill? Well, the reason why is because the Democrats actually set the plate for us in the, this hiring of 87,000 IRS agents has gained attention and brought attention to what has been going on at the IRS, and now people are looking for an alternative. And fortunately, throughout this process of, of hiring, of electing the new speaker, it's gaining momentum. And I will tell you that there is a lot of people, a lot of momentum for this bill right now, and hopefully it will be brought to the floor, and I think it will be. Well, I am very excited about it. I hope that it will have a real debate and not just... And that's what I'm hoping, actually, from this Congress altogether, buddy, is that we start actually debating things in committee, debating things on the floor, having real discussions about things. Yeah, it's messy, but this top-down kind of way that things have been done by both Democrats and Republicans is not the way to... uh to take care of the financial responsibilities that the United States of America has. And you're exactly right, Martha. And, as you know, during the process of, of electing the speaker, you're right, it was messy. And, and I know a lot of people thought it was dysfunctional, but it was quite the, the opposite. Actually, a lot of good things were achieved there. The rule changes that we made, they are good rule changes, particularly as it relates to spending. I was really excited about the rule changes that, that were made that are going to be relevant to spending. Do you think, let me ask you a question, because um, and it kind of bubbled up overnight that we now have a couple of instances of some documents that the Biden administration or that President Biden had in offices that it appears, you know, it's these are offices that he held for the years that he was not in office and that... 
Uh, these documents were found before the election, the first round of them. Now there's some other ones that have been found. Um, you know, people are making a lot of this. What What are you hearing on the ground about this, and what do you think needs to be done? Well, obviously, we need to be looking into that. As you know, one of our priorities in this Congress, and when I say we, I mean the Republican conference, is going to be oversight. No better example than what we've just witnessed here. This is the same president, the same Joe Biden, who is so critical of, of Donald Trump, of the former president, when his when Mar-a-Lago was, was raided and they found the documents down there. And how could that happen? You know, he was saying, and, and it's just scary. Uh, that that somebody in, in this position and what were the documents and what information was on them? Well, those are good questions, and there are questions that need to be answered about the same documents, uh, the same situation, I should say, that exists now, only this time you were the one who had the documents, and you weren't even president. Some of them are when he was vice president, not president. Yeah, and, and it concerns me. Look, I think there's a lot of things that need to be looked at, and this is why I'm glad that kind of this, this church-style committee is going to be had on our intelligence agencies because I think there's way too much classifying of documents. And it's pretty well known, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, when you get out of office and you're president or vice president, there's certain levels of documents that get given to you so that you can write your memoirs and you do all those kinds of things that you do after you're out of office and so the question has got to be how does things become classified how do they become unclassified and who makes those decisions and i think that you know that another part of what the congress is going to do that i think is important is they're going to start looking at these intelligence agencies and how they're making these decisions you're absolutely right um you know the weaponization of the doj and the fbi is something that we're very concerned about, and it has been weaponized. These agencies have been weaponized by the, the, the Democratic administration, and we need to look into that, and we need to stop it. Uh, these, there should not be any American can, afraid of the FBI or afraid of the Department of Justice. But well, we and, and I'm going to say something that sounds a little crazy, buddy. Is it... There's probably nothing behind these documents that Biden had that, I mean, if they've been sitting in his office for six years, I don't know how they can still be classified, but it's the same thing. I don't think there was, I think they overreacted on the Trump side, you know, that what we need to do is actually look at these documents, find out why they were classified and find out what the situation is. I think there was an overreaction on the part of the former president, former President Trump. And it's possible there's an overreaction on the Biden side. But the truth of the matter is, President Biden made a statement that was very negative related to what happened with President Trump. And now the shoe's on the other foot. Absolutely. And, and you are right. We need to look at how they are determining what's to be classified, what level of classification it's, it's going to be. Those are important points. But what bothers me most is that former President Trump was persecuted in the press yes. as a result of this. And, and, and yet Joe Biden's going to get a free pass. Well, that, you know, that's just obviously that's wrong. Yeah, and I think that that's what, if, if what Nancy Pelosi said, that no one is above the law, then that should be true whether it's Donald Trump or it's Joe Biden, and or Hillary Clinton for that matter. So we've got to 
make sure that we are being objective about this, that we are not trying to settle scores, and that we are just trying to put the rule of law in place equally across the board. Absolutely. And I can assure you that Jim Jordan and the Judiciary Committee, Jamie Comer and the Oversight Committee, they're they're committed to doing just that. Well, Buddy Carter, you know I wish you the best on getting the fair tax passed. I think it is the best way to be able to uh, to tax people. It is a way that you can control and it is going to get, you're going to get attacked. I mean, you know that you're going to get attacked. You're going to, they're going to accuse you of raising taxes on everyone, but I know you're ready to fight. We are ready to fight. We've got a strong coalition behind us, a great set of co-sponsors, including Andrew Clyde, who is one of the leading co is the leading co-sponsor on this bill. And, and we're determined, we're determined to get it to the floor for a vote and determined to get it passed. Congressman Buddy Carter, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and uh, Shondell Summers here with me, and we're going to be talking to Matt Brown. And Matt, you know, it's like Brian Kemp unleashed. He... um, he was at eggs and issues and basically said, you know, it's it's different being in a second term. He's got plenty of money. He's kept most of his promises and he's going to be able to help a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a very interesting speech in the start to his term. I mean, Kemp was very forward looking in his conversation. He was not, you know, looking back on the campaign trail at all, even though he sound, sounded pretty similar. But he was really laying out the, the budget that we, he actually just released this morning about all of his economic priorities. And they really are economic priorities that he's looking at. And he's got plenty of money to do it. Um, Terry England famously said last year that it's not hard doing a budget when there's not any money because you just say no. Um, when there's a lot of money, it's harder to do the budget because everybody wants something. But it does seem like he's keeping the priority on getting money either into the pockets of state employees, teachers, or giving it back in way property tax rebates and things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, the rainy day fund is sitting at $5.2 billion according to his current budget and everything. And, and just like last year, there's a $1 billion excess from, um, for the tax refund. So that means that, you know, a lot of people are going to be eligible for, you know, $250 rebate up to 500 for joint filers. There's a lot of stuff that he um, is going to be promising back on a, you know, very conservative economic agenda, just like he said he would. Now, I've gotten a number of emails from some people who don't like Brian Kemp. And uh, they are one of the big complaints they're making is they think he didn't do enough on immigration reform. And the other thing was that he didn't do enough on urban crime. And I guess my thought on the, not to make excuses, but I just think that mayors are more responsible for their own cities than governors are. Uh, but but I'm, that's kind of the theme from the Never Kempers. Now, granted, they're in the minority because he won very resoundingly. But are you hearing any of that of people grumbling or people still just basking in the glow? I think that, well, I think yesterday was obviously um, for Georgia Republicans, you know, very much a basking in the glow moment. That There was a lot of, you know, good feelings. Um, you know, everyone who I chatted with was basically like, you know, today is not the day that I'm going to be airing all my grievances with my rivals. But there are still rivalries. There are still frustrations. And there's a lot of going to be jockeying, not just in the state legislature, but also, you know, throughout all of the, the different power centers in Georgia here in terms of what are going to be the next chapters and what's going to be the future of Georgia in this state. And a lot of that is going to hinge kind of on what does Kemp want to make his legacy here and what are the the factors that 
he, where he wants to go and really make a you know lasting economic legacy versus a, a strong you know conservative policy and really cement his identity as a as a Kemp Republican Party here in Georgia. And I think that's going to cause a rivalry that you're going to see you know as other people below him try and jockey for what policies they want. So we're talking to Matt Brown from the Washington Post. Do you know what Davos is anyway? The Davos Economic Summit. I, I am familiar with Davos. I think that we should explain it because it, it, you're, you're a, only a certain type of person understands what Davos is, but but um, and or even needs to know. But it's basically this massive World Economic Forum over in Europe that you know all of the richest people in the world, all the big business executives, uh, and all of the politicians come in and grovel at basically the richest <laughs> people in the world to tell them, hey, you should come to my country to you know invest in us and i've got great citizens i've got great work i have lots of resources and whatnot um and that's basically the the dynamic is is what's going on there it's a very very clubby very shishi only the fanciest business journalists get invited like that's the that's the environment and i think it's great that kemp is going but i think he's going to be the kind of guy that they're not used to seeing oh absolutely not like these these guys are everyone from you know the, the the president of the united states to the president of China, to, you know, horribly corrupt business leaders from, you know, XYZ developing countries are all going to be at Davos. And Kemp is coming basically saying, I have a, you know, very robust subset of the American economy that's, you know, open for business, basically. And I don't think that Kemp would have been going to Davos in his first term, but in his second term, when he's trying to make an economic legacy and a lot of his wins in his first term were based off of bringing international business to the state of Georgia. This is the type of thing that he can go to now and say, basically, look, I'm I'm not running for governor again anyway, at least. Um, we can see what else he might run for later. But he's saying my state's open for business and I have a very robust economy to be, you know, investing folks in and everything. Um, and I think that's going to be a very strong pitch at places like Davos going forward. So I know you're based in Georgia, but what's your take on the Biden document scandal and what is The Washington Post doing related to it? So we had a really good story today, actually, that came out that was talking about how this is causing unexpected political um, troubles for Biden, basically. It, it's something that's been a really interesting um, factor where, you know, over the past year, obviously, there was a lot of, you know, consternation and national discussion around the Trump documents and why did Trump want to keep them? Why did Trump, you know, resist the DOJ handing them over and everything? And then next thing you know, there's this situation with Biden where suddenly Biden has documents. And, and, and you know, regardless of the merits of both situations, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, Biden did anything improper with these documents and they immediately notified them when they found them, for instance. But it is the case that now there's a situation where Biden has documents also and everything, and a lot of people are focusing on that as the as a discussion. At the same time that we're dealing with, you know, Hillary Clinton having had documents, Donald Trump having had documents. This is this is a rampant issue apparently where very powerful our leaders just keep private top secret documents themselves in places that they shouldn't be. Yeah, and it does seem to me that I don't I don't believe that either Donald Trump or Joe Biden made a decision, hey, take that document with you. Maybe the letter from Kim Jong-un, maybe. But in general, I think other people made those decisions. And I just think that we need to get to the point that if it's if it's not yours, don't take it with you. And any document that comes through the president or vice president's office actually belongs to the United States government. It doesn't belong to you. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend to know what goes on in either Joe Biden or Donald Trump's head when it comes to this stuff. But I, I, I will say that it, well, this I is, like to has pretend. That yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. We, we, we could imagine. We could, we could, we could try to go there. But 
but I, I, I think that this does show that there needs to be some, some streamlining to the process of, you know, executive record keeping and whatnot here and, and what can be done. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, hopefully as, as we, you know, reimagine some ethics laws going forward, that that's something that, that can be done, actually. Absolutely. Matt Brown, what are you working on this week? So we're taking a big look at Congress actually right now and, and not just, you know, some of the, you know, individual players and, and, and the, the craziness going on up there, but actually what it means for people. Like one of the biggest things that Congress does is oversight. Like we're, we ask these people to hold the, you know, executive branch accountable, to hold private companies accountable. And we're just taking a look right now at actually what does that accountability look like, you know, just for everyday people on if your member of Congress is actually going out there and really investigating or coming up with the laws that you actually ask them to. So just, this is just going to be some basic accountability that I'm taking a look at as we really see these House committees and Senate committees, you know, get to, get to work on saying what their priorities are and everything. And, and um, I'm going to be taking a special look at, you know, the incredibly polarized but ever interesting Georgia delegation to Congress, too. It should be fun to watch. Matt Brown, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Whatever the standard we hold the left to, we should also hold ourselves to. Um, this is a place where you know, this person, he, he literally made up his life story and his resume up until just a few days ago when he changed his website bio. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and that's Nancy Mace, who is the South Carolina uh, Congresswoman, talking about George Santos. And look... I am going to call out Democrats when they do things like this. I am, but I am never going to say, oh, Democrats do it too, so we shouldn't call out Republicans when they do it. Because in my mind, it's worse when a Republican does it, because we're supposed to be law and order. We're supposed to not put up with this kind of stuff. We're supposed to be the people that hold people individually responsible. And that's why when we have people in our own party that act in this way, that it hurts us more than it does on the other side. Because we're supposed to be better than that. You know, Democrats put up with any kind of behavior from any of their people. And I would love, you know, I, and again, I hate getting into the Democrat-Republican discussion, even though I do it all the time. It's not comfortable for me. But I will tell you, I was at the Eggs and Issues breakfast yesterday. And every, almost every person that came up to me to thank me for what I was doing on the podcast on radio and uh, on the Georgia gang were Democrats because they said, we need to listen to more Republicans and you are a Republican that at least acknowledges good and bad on both sides. And look, there are Democrats out there that do that too. But the problem is we have now gotten to the point, and if you disagree with me, I want to hear from you at 770-535-2911. We have now gotten to the point where if you point out anything on your own side that people want to say you're disloyal or you're a rhino or you're not or a dino, Democrat name only, it's this attitude that if you are not in lockstep behind your conference that you're not legitimate. And that's why, look, last week I was all over the place on the 20. And it had to do with communication. And I think by the end of the week, they got to where they needed to go. In fact, uh, on Saturday, the Republican women of Hall are going to have Andrew Clyde at their meeting at 930. And what's great about that is they sent a very strongly worded letter to Andrew Clyde at the beginning of last week about how they needed he needed to support Kevin McCarthy. And through the week, 
they've gotten to the point where they're going to have a standing ovation for him, for him sticking to his guns and getting the concessions that he got. And that is all a function of communication. People did not understand at the beginning of last week what the 20 were doing. And that's why I called him out. I called him out on this program, and then when I had him on the show, I said to all of them, the problem is you guys didn't communicate well what you were trying to accomplish in the beginning, and you put the wrong person, Matt Gates, as the face of what you were doing because his agenda was different from your agenda. His agenda was about putting forward the name of Donald Trump as speaker, not the concessions that you all were working for. So his agenda was different than the, everybody else's, and he's a, he's a swarmy guy. You know, I, I, it, it really made me recoil when Congressman Doug Collins was running for Senate and he was accepting the help of Matt Gates, Because I know that Doug Collins is a better person than that. I know that Doug Collins, at his core, is a good person. He's a good father. He's a good husband. He is a, a good legislator. I know that he was doing that because he had people in his t- on his team that were saying, we have to get these radical Republicans in here to campaign for you because that's the only way we're going to beat Kelly Leffler. And so that's what he did. And he took the advice. And that's okay. You know, you take advice from the consultant. But here's the thing. No one knows the name of his consultant. Everybody knows his name. And I took that very much to heart in my own race. And I know what some of you are saying. You lost that race. Why do you even talk about it? You learn a lot more from losing than you do from winning. And I, I understood that there were things that I could have done that maybe I would have ended up winning the race. But I didn't feel like I had all of the facts on my side for it. And I had people coming up to me that, but they wouldn't go on the record, that had things that I could have used against Doug in my race 10 years before. And I made the decision, me, Martha Zoller, made the decision not to use them because I knew no one was going to know the name of my consultant, but everyone was going to know my name. And I felt it was more valuable to protect my integrity than it was to win at any cost. And there were things that were said about me that were totally untrue. And that's fine. That's all water under the bridge. And Doug and I have have come to an agreement. And I like Doug. But I do think that when he gets in that campaign mode, that win at all cost campaign mode, I just think that's why we're where we are right now. The win at all costs. We've got to stand up for something. We're Republicans. We stand for personal responsibility, holding people accountable, balancing budgets. I know people are laughing out loud. I hope you're not driving when I'm saying that because we haven't balanced a budget since um, 1999 or 2000, maybe. We have got to be what we say we are, okay? And we can't put up with just anything from our side just to get at the other side. Because they're going to cave in. They go in lockstep. People look at them and say, oh, man, they voted together every single vote. Isn't that great? No, I don't think it's great.
And even though I didn't like what the 20 did at the beginning of the week because I don't think they communicated it well, by the time they actually started communicating what they were trying to do, and I had people say to me yesterday in a meeting that um, there were, uh, you know, now the, the speaker's so much weaker. I don't know. I don't know if he is or he isn't because I don't know what the rules are. And I would love to hear if somebody knows the rules are behind this so-called one person can call for the speaker to be thrown out. Uh, you still got to have a vote to get him out. One person isn't going to get him out. One person might bring it to a vote. But one person isn't going to get him out. I'd love to know the details on that. And I know you're listening to me in Andrew Clyde's office. So if you've got the details on that, send them over. And I'll look for them, too. But I will tell you that I am proud to be a Republican. I am proud to be a person that stands for small business and entrepreneurship and and uh, strong defense and being a social conservative, being a fiscal conservative. I'm proud of all of that. And I know I would have done a great job as a congresswoman, and I would have been that squeaky wheel that uh, let you know what was going on all the time. And I probably wouldn't have gotten chairmanships, and I probably wouldn't have gotten, you know, because I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not like that person that people put at the top of things. I'm the person that's the squeaky wheel. And that's what people respect about me, because I'm going to tell you the truth about what I think and from my perspective. But if I get presented with facts... To the contrary, then I'm going to, I might change my point of view. That's why people from all perspectives get along with me because I'm respectful of them. And we need to do more of that. And I don't believe we can't. I will not accept that the kind of dysfunctional way we're in right now will never change. I will not accept that. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that people know the truth about what's happening and can make up their own minds. Because I, like de Tocqueville, who wrote Democracy in America, believe in the average, everyday American making good decisions. I believe in that. And I think whether it was the early 1800s, which is when de Tocqueville was traveling America and talking to people with second-grade educations that understood how our economy worked, or people today that are fighting in the Congress and everything in between. I believe in our ability to ultimately get things right. We might elect some bad people here and there. I'm sure the people that elected George Santos are having second thoughts. But ultimately, we do the right thing. And I believe in that. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.